News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm always fascinated by the things that researchers study and what we can learn from that. For instance, studying people who get skin piercings. Why? Why would we study that? Well, it turns out researchers wanted to learn how the skin changes after someone gets a piercing. So what did they learn when they looked at this? Well, joining us now is Charles Zhu, who's a biology PhD student at McGill University who, who led the study into this. Charles, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so what were you looking at here? Like, what type of skin piercings are we talking about? So we looked at uh, your standard earlobe piercings. Oh, like getting my ears pierced? Yep. Okay, that's very, very common. So what were you looking for? Yeah, so we uh, wanted to look at what the human piercing microbiome looked like. So previous studies have focused on trying to figure out what which pathogens cause piercing infections, but no one actually knew what a normal, healthy piercing microbiome looked like. And our study shows that even when piercings are not infected, their microbiome is distinct from unpierced skin. And it also seems that uh, while random events can strongly impact the community assembly of the piercing microbiome, the new environmental conditions within the piercing can help determine what can survive in this new community. And this can be a pretty general finding. So environmental disturbances that cause a shift in the conditions of uh, the environment could uh, alter the playing field to give an advantage to one competitor over another. And this might be a strong factor in determining what the new biological community looks like after the disturbance. Okay, what do you mean by microbiome? Yeah, so the microbiome basically means... um, the community of bacteria and viruses and um, protists that live on or within a specific environment. And so in this case, we're looking at the uh, environment within human piercings. Okay. And these are so incredibly common, Charles. I mean, I had mine. I don't even remember when I got mine. I was so little. So what happens? Like what kind of changes happen in that skin area Um, that impact us when we get a piercing like that? Yeah, so the the idea was that we could use um, human piercings as a model to study how the environment uh, can impact, or sorry, how uh, environmental disturbances can impact um, the local community and how the, the newly changed environment afterwards can affect what communities can develop. And so... Um, your skin is represents the biggest organ within the human body. And um, there's microbiomes on every part of your skin, um, from the bottoms of your feet to the palm of your hands to uh, your earlobes. And um, modern piercing um, practices involve first the local sterilization with usually a antiseptic wipe. And so we theorized that this could function like uh, basically as if a wildfire came and swept through a forest and destroyed the local environment. And after your uh, earlobe gets sterilized, um, basically you punch a giant hole right through the skin and then you insert a metal stud. Um, 
And so are we, you saying that it was not beneficial for to put the antiseptic on first? So from the perspective of us, the human beings, um, yes, it was very beneficial because we are trying to reduce the possibility of there being uh, pathogenic bacteria that might cause an infection later. Right. But from the the perspective of the local microbiome, um, it is basically a huge environment of disturbance. So is there a negative effect of that then? Uh, there certainly is a negative effect of that to the local microbiome. Um, any sort of general antibiotic will uh, kill off resident species. And um, that'll affect what sorts of communities can uh, live within the piercing afterwards. Hmm. So Charles, is there, like from your research that you did into this, is there a better way then of approaching something like ear piercing? So one practical um, application of this research uh, could be the development of for example, pre and probiotic uh, prevention and control of skin infections. So traditionally, infectious disease research has focused on finding a specific source of an infection after it's already happened, and then trying to find ways to destroy that pathogen. But if we take a more community-wide and temporal approach, we can try to understand the natural fluctuations of the piercing microbiome and these complex ecological and evolutionary factors um, that can sometimes involve, result in invasion by a pathogen. And once we really have a good understanding, we can then try to promote the growth of specific uh, species that won't harm us, but can compete with these potential pathogens to basically keep them in check so they don't take over and uh, cause a problem. Were you surprised by your results? Um, it was surprising to see that... Um, even though the microbiome is incredibly diverse and there are probably thousands of species involved, um, we found that there were only two major members, um, those being Cutibacterium acne and Staphylococcus epidermides, both of which are uh, medically relevant species. And C. acne is obviously a major cause of acne and S. epidermides is the leading cause of infections of indwelling medical devices like catheters and prostheses. And uh, within piercings, we observed that C. acne decreased while S. epidermides increased, um, which makes sense since piercings and medical devices share a lot of similarities. You're inserting a metal object through the human body um, and understanding these dynamics could potentially lead to new ways to prevent and control infections of both the piercings and um, medical devices. Yeah, the medical devices one, that's a big one. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Charles Zhu, who's a biology PhD student at McGill University, led the study looking at skin piercings and environmental change, like what happens on that skin surface to the microbiome, to the bacteria there when you have something like ear piercings done. But also, as Charles points out, super important in the hospital setting, right? When you think of all the ways in which they are piercing the skin. Uh, yes, also very valuable to learn. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, let's talk about what's going on out there in the big wide world. Our Scott Chance is with us now. Scott, I know weather, I think, is first and foremost on people's minds yeah. right now. Yes, absolutely. This is the day when everyone is going to be running out and grabbing bags of salt and uh, snow and, shovels <laughs> and saying... And the lineup at the tire yep. place is going to be around the corner, you around the block. betcha. And then when it all dies down, everyone is going to say to themselves, you know, next year, I'm, I'm going to get prepared. on that earlier. I'm going to get on that a little earlier. Okay, at our house, we have had a new snow shovel sitting there all year long, bought on sale last year. So we'll see what happens. Excellent. But do you have salt? Do you yes. have, okay. Yeah, per- we do Simi, have you are prepared and that makes me happy. Preparedness is, that is all an it important takes thing. In Vancouver is to have salt and a snow shovel. I mean, I think that those, those two things make a huge difference. And, um, proper tires? I think that, yeah, well, okay. Proper tires too, but yeah. Um, okay, so those three things can yes. make a huge difference. And it's not hard to have those three things. It's not a lot to ask of people. No. But um, I think that, yeah, I a lot of people just are sort of negligent and think like, oh, whatever, we'll, well get there. Well, here's your warning. Here's your, today is a good day. If you didn't do it on the weekend and you didn't hear the forecast, today is the day to do it. Because today is actually, although it's snowing in some places already, it's not going to stick terribly today. It will later in the week. So you've got time to do it. Yeah. Also, it was really cool to uh, yesterday see the snow line in the mountains yeah, moving lower down. And lower. As a person who skis and my um, social media feeds were filled with people at Whistler. Just, I mean, okay, first of all, Whistler was lined up out to the highway again. Ridiculous. It was insane. But there was also uh, photos and video of people who got up peak chair and were like, worth it. Absolutely worth the wait. Um, really? We are going to have a ski season after all. Okay. Interesting. We'll talk to the mayor of Whistler are coming up a little bit later on the show. Uh, but let's talk a little entertainment news right now because all the talk is of the Golden Globes, which I actually thought three or four years ago that was the end of the Golden Globes right. with all the stuff that came out. But no, they won't die. They're back. I watched them just to see what's what. So, you know, keep up with the news out there. They were terrible. Yeah, we love a train wreck, right? People love to watch a car. It's like a car crash, right? You can't look away. I love to be entertained, and I was not entertained. I mean, there is that. So if you missed the Golden Globes, the reviews are not good. Uh, Host Joe Coy, by all accounts, absolutely bombed. I watched his uh, monologue. And when when you're giving a monologue and then... In the monologue saying, I didn't write that joke. By the way, I didn't write that joke. Yeah, it's bad. a sign that things are not going well, you know? And he ha- he did that a few times. He said, hey, I got picked for this like 10 days ago, and I didn't have time to. He- it felt like he was blaming other people throughout the monologue for his monologue not going well. And it's kind of like doing this awkward laugh at himself. And, you know, I know he was there was supposed to be two other hosts that didn't pan out, and so they kind of went to him. But didn't we have uh, an award ceremony in recent years where they went without a host. Yeah, I love that. And that was really successful. And because it felt like... some of the people who present awards are really funny. Just let them do that. Um, Carrie Russell, Ray Romano, hilarious. Will uh, Ferrell, Kristen Wiig. Fantastic. Totally. And they're stars and like, let them do that. And we're always worried about timing on these eh. things. And so just, yes. We love a good montage. Do a montage. You know, get into giving out awards. That's really all we care about. Now, I will say that there is one exception to that rule in my mind, and it will live forever as the greatest hosts of the Golden Globes. Is that Tina Tina Fey and and Amy Poehler? People will say Ricky Gervais, though, right? Like, he was also very funny. He was funny to me, but there's just something about Tina and Amy together. I loved them on Weekend Update, that era of SNL, and they just have this ability to play off each other. And also, I I just think that there's something about 
okay, so they're the people that would get critiqued. They're in the audience at times, and you know, and they also just have this ability to, like, comedy is getting away with it, and they do it in a way that they can get away with it. Maybe they should have Colin Jost and Michael Che do it then. You know what? I think that is not a bad idea at hmm. all. Well, Colin I'd have Jost to and watch Michael again. Che are great. I'd have to watch then, because after that last night, I wasn't prepared to. But let's talk about the movies and the shows that won. Yeah, Oppenheimer, the big winner, won five awards, Best Drama, Killian uh, Murphy won for it. Best yeah. Male Actor. Robert Downey Jr. won for it. it. His speech was fantastic. Uh, Poor Things, the Emma Stone one, where she got the eyebrows. Yeah, that I I wasn't sure about this movie, but now it sounds like I'm going to have to put it on my list. Yeah, yes. Um, Succession won for Best TV Drama, which who expected anything less? Uh, Kieran Culkin won, and his acceptance speech was fantastic. Um, I think that my favorite moment of the night was Lily Gladstone's acceptance speech. Now, this is about the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, which I have a lot of thoughts on Killers. I had such high hopes for that movie. Didn't love it the way I wanted to love it. I wish the movie had been entirely about her character. Yeah, and I think that her winning, um, I don't know if it's to sort of acknowledge that, that maybe the movie should have been about her as opposed yeah. to giving the, the award all to the somebody time. else. Well, also, I didn't need all that Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio time in that yes. movie. I needed more of her. Her story was the interesting thing. Well, it's funny, like Joe Coy in, in his desperate monologue actually had a, a quick line about that where he's like, you know, white people even stole the plot of the movie. Like yeah, that the was, plot, stole the plot of the I book. I did chuckle when I heard that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she, it was fantastic. She started the acceptance speech in her native language, which, and you could tell, like, I mean, she's never been on the stage before. She's like, wow, this is so incredible. I love the sound of her voice. Yes. And she was like, you know, she thanked her mom for helping to get like Blackfoot, Blackfeet native language teaching in her school. It was, it was just really like, um, what it should be. Moving. Yes. Not a typical Hollywood moment. That's so that exactly was great. it. That was the one nice thing, too. Yeah. Scott, thank you Watch for that. Watch that on YouTube. You didn't yeah. miss anything else. <laughs> didn't miss anything else at all. Read the book. How about that? Read the book, Killers of the Flower Moon. Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Von, are you seeing any snow in Victoria at all? No, it never snows in Victoria. You always say uh, that, though, Vaughn. <laughs> and I end up jinxing the city and my neighbors yeah. go, will you stop saying that? Because it does snow here. At the moment, it's cold, but uh, it seems all right. But, you know, it's pitch black out there, too. Like, who can see whether it's snowing or not? Well, it's snowing out parts of Metro Vancouver. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, well, life is pretty cheap over there on the mainland, you know. I, uh, oh, here sure. on the that island, uh, we have a different lifestyle. Oh, okay. So that's what you've heard, that it's cheap and over hey, here. Hey, Simi, thank you for letting me know that I made the right decision not to watch the Golden Globes last night. Yeah, boy, did you ever. Uh, I also have to tell you, Yvonne, I was out having a tea with some cousins of mine on the weekend, lovely little bakery that we went to, sat next to uh, a couple of gentlemen who were also out enjoying themselves on a Saturday afternoon, and turns out they were fans. We had a nice little chat. But you know what the one question they wanted to know was? Yeah, Okay. What's Von Palmer really like? <laughs> <laughs> People have been asking this for many years. Uh, and I said, the guy that you hear on the radio, that is Von Palmer. <laughs> I, I, I still quote, I don't know if I can say the entire quote on the radio, but I still quote Dale Lovick, who was a member of the legislature for a long time, and a cabinet minister, and one of his constituents asked him once, uh, Dale, why uh, have you agreed to do Palmer's TV show? Because he's such an a-hole. And Lovick replied, he's only an a-hole in print. So 
I thought of putting that on my business cards, actually. <laughs> that, that would work. I said, no, he's absolutely lovely. I said, exactly what you hear on the radio is the kind of person that he is. So there you go. You've got a lot of fans out there, Ron. Well, that's nice to know. It is. They're probably all people who love the village people are just tuning in for that. Yeah, anyway. they secretly believe you're a village people fan. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in politics, too, because we're marking a bit of an auspicious anniversary, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what the NDP government says this month, because a year ago in January, they embarked on an experiment with decriminalization of small amounts of very dangerous, nasty drugs. And that took effect. And when they did it, it was said, you know, it was a three-year experiment, and the critics... And the advocates agreed on one thing, which was jurisdictions elsewhere, particularly in Canada, but also in North America, will be watching to see how it works out. I expect they were watching. And Simi, at this point, I don't know what the government's going to say, but I have to think if anybody out there was watching what happened in the first year under decriminalization in B.C., I can't imagine any other government is going to say, well, that's the way to go for sure. It's really worked out there in British Columbia. It did open a bit of a Pandora's box, didn't it? It did. And look, you know, by any measure, we'll start with the political controversy, but uh, public disorder and chaos, uh, it didn't even reduce the death toll. You know, this. I look back at the stories when this was announced, a year ago, or when we were on the verge of launching a year ago, it was six deaths a day. It's now seven. So I, uh, I understand the reasons it was done. It certainly was done in part because of a profound belief that the old system didn't work. Okay, but at what point do we say this isn't working and why isn't it working? Now, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people say, well, if you put more resources into it or give the experiment a chance or all that. But the other problem the government has, and we're waiting to hear from the government on this, is that court decision, which basically put the government's effort to put some restrictions on open drug use, the court has suspended it. And I think that that's going to undermine, that decision stands, that's going to undermine public tolerance for decriminalization because decriminalization is one thing. Open drug use pretty much anywhere you want to do it, which is what the advocates say, uh, and and almost what the court decision says. Um, I just think, you know, the New Democrats now have two problems. One is explaining why it's gone so badly for the first year? And two, how are they going to deal with the court decision? Right. And they still haven't said a whole lot about that. Yeah. Yeah, So our colleagues who asked last week for a government response, there was a one paragraph response from Mike Farnworth the day the decision came down on December 29th. So our colleagues who asked, okay, what are you guys going to do about this? Are you going to appeal? Are you going to change the law? What are you going to do? Uh, We were told our colleagues last week, uh, wait for this week. There will be a response this week from the government. Uh, Apparently, it'll come from Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General. Uh, The Attorney General, uh, Nikki Sharma, may have something to say as well. If the Premier does a media availability this week, I expect he'll be asked 
But uh, they've had 10 days, Simi. Um, They're going to have to make it a good response because, as you know, uh, other political leaders, including some NDP-supporting mayors, have been saying, hey, this just won't wash with the public, right? Exactly. This will – it's bad enough now. Uh, If this court decision stands, uh, it will not wash. I – I'm struck, Simi, by one thing looking over all the comments is the people, the advocates who are saying, who are celebrating this decision. Like, it, they, they, I don't think they, they, they don't, they don't yeah. see the bigger picture here. They well, don't. yeah, and they're, and they're, look, I, I think it's fair comment that the judgment just the the judges that I know he's the chief justice of BC and you know, Leonard Clark Clark said he may he may have gotten the law right okay that's encouraging but it is just so out of touch with the yeah. public mood and the public concern in British Columbia people people were skeptical as it is about decriminalization but they just you know, they're not going to stand for the kind of disorder that comes from open drug use within. The government said you can't take heroin and crack cocaine within 15 meters of a playground. Reasonable. And yet. And the court ruled that that's a violation of the rights of drug takers. I know. I, know. I, I, I just don't see if that's the way we're going to go. I think the government's going to have to abandon the experiment. Well, we'll hear what they say this week for sure. Now, we have more with Von Palmer. Now we're talking about fairies, right, Von? Yes, we're talking about fairies. We're talking about. Uh, service disruptions, cancellations blamed on lack of vessels that are functioning and staff shortages and travelers warned it's not going to get better. It's going to take us a long time to fix this. Uh, If this sounds like another story about BC ferries, it isn't. It's about Washington State ferries. That state, like British Columbia, they have the largest ferry service in the United States, just as we're the largest in Canada. And we have similar problems, uh, mentioning it partly, Simi, because uh, here in BC, uh, some New Democrats in particular have often pointed to Washington yes. State as the way we should go. You know, they, they have uh, time, uh, their ships are cheaper to operate, they have less staff. Um, they're kept up. Uh, they're built in Washington State. These are all things New Democrats like. And so they've said, uh, in fact, I remember we had an NDP cabinet minister go down and ride the Washington State ferries and uh, Claire Trevenna, and she came back and said, you know, they've got a lot of good ideas down there, and, and they don't lavish all these community uh, Uh, cruise ship amenities on their travelers. These are just basic transportation back and forth. So, uh, well, uh, you read this report. There's a good story on the website of Como TV uh, on the weekend uh, in Seattle and the Seattle Times has had coverage too. And the state uh, ferry service has put out a contingency plan for the next four years. It's a very depressing picture they've painted. Which is interesting to me because people often, when we talk BC ferries, will send me stories or comments that say, oh, look at Washington State. Like, look, they do a great job. And it is clear they are struggling with the same issues. Yeah. Yeah, they're struggling with the same issues. It's a different ferry service. It's much more oriented toward commuters. The, The busiest ferries in Washington State are traveled on by people who live on one island and travel into Seattle. It's, it's less dependent on tourism. 
The runs are shorter. American regulation is different, particularly regarding crew levels, but the American regulator has been jumping in too, and they've forced them to take ships out of service because they're not well-maintained and they're very old. And they also have the same rule we do here, which is if you don't have your full crew complement, you can't sail. So you look at all that and you go, uh, particularly the recruitment of qualified staff issue is the same as in British Columbia and 60% of their cancellations are because they didn't have the crew to sail. Um, The other one that's interesting to me is building ships in Washington state. So for a long time, that was the law. If they were going to add a ship to the fleet, they had to build it in Washington state. And they weren't being built because it was more expensive. It was hard to get time in the shipyards. And so they ended up with a fleet that was very old, poorly maintained, expensive to maintain, and short of ships. It got so bad down there that the state legislature, Simi, did something I thought we had never seen, which is they waived the requirement that the ships be built in Washington state. Oh, wow. Having gone as far as we have in British Columbia and having them built in Romania or Poland or Germany, but they have down there said, okay, you can shop around for the better rates. That will change things in the long run. But again, I'm reading this contingency report and it says the earliest they can have a new ship in service is 2028. So this announced schedule they've put out a reduced service on a number of their key commuter routes is going to affect things for a long time. There is one consequence for British Columbia. The service between Anacortes and Sydney, which is popular here, and popular with tourists, that is not going to be restored. It was canceled during the pandemic. That is not going to be restored till 2030. They won't have a ship available for that run uh, until 2030. So uh, the terminal is sitting out there on the edge of Sydney. I went by it the other day. Uh, It is not going to have people lining up to get on the ship or cars either coming either way. Uh, until 2030. Okay. Well, at least we know now it's not just us, right? We know there's problems elsewhere. Vaughn, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The biggest story for all of us today is the weather. Of course, it does feel like winter has finally showed up and boy, it's showing up with a bit of a wallop this week starting today. So we thought let's get an extended forecast this morning with the help of Mark Madriga, our Global News Chief Meteorologist. Good morning, Mark. Well, good morning, Simi. Great to be here today on a kind of a wacky day and a wacky week ahead. It should be interesting. Yeah, It, it is. I feel like that's when we talk to you, right? When things are kind of wacky out there. Yeah, and it's it's been a while. I can't remember our last chat because uh, El Nino has been so dominant. It's been so mild, and and uh, well, we've had our share of rain, but no wintry weather really uh, uh, so far this year. Uh, but it's coming. It's okay. coming. It's starting today. Yeah, let's start with that today. What are you seeing out there right now with the current conditions? 
Well, it's very close to freezing. Most places at about plus one, as expected. This cool air still over us. So really, as the precipitation moved in early this morning, in fact, it was about 3 a.m., we started to get our first snowflakes. It's just cold enough for snow. A uh, little rain mixed in right downtown. Uh, I'm not seeing any major accumulations, although here at Global in Burnaby, uh, a couple centimeters, it looks like, on some of the cars. But it's, uh, it's melting as it hits the ground. So, yeah, it depends on where you are. I'm, I'm looking at two to four centimeters meters this morning, kind of a ballpark average, a little less downtown, but there is some moisture here. And how warm it gets today is the question. I think only about plus three later, but the trend is to have a little bit milder air above us, and that means more rain and snow by the afternoon, especially closer to sea level. But, you know, you go to Squamish, to Whistler, it'll stay snow all day, so will Hope, probably Chilliwack, and and uh, in the middle of Vancouver Island, it may not turn over to rain. So kind of transition-y, uh, I've seen worse, but today's a little taste of what's to come. So there's there's today out of the way, Simi. Okay, good. But tonight, I, I noticed it tonight, like it does turn to heavy rain. And did I see like even a potential for a thunderstorm in the forecast? Yeah. You sure did. Yeah, it's quite an active cold front crossing the region. So I think primarily rain, but certainly the North Shore Mountains and other areas will stay as snow. But let's go more rain than any snow showers tonight. And uh, that rain will get heavy. Uh, overnight, as the cold front passes, it'll be blustery. Uh, not a wind warning, but, but gusty along with that risk of thunderstorms. I mean, I can go on and on, and I will for you. Just hang in there. Uh, and then tomorrow, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of showery and windy and cool and unsettled. And, and uh but overnight, yeah, as that front passes, you'll notice you may be, uh, well, you and I probably get you know, a 3 a.m. for our morning show. So it may be the thunder that wakes us up uh, yeah. overnight tonight. You never know. Um, okay. So, yeah, qu- quite active. And, uh, but when, and then, do, when do things yeah, yeah. really change and then things get really cold, right? Because more snow is coming later in the week that might stick. Yeah, I noticed in our official forecast, and I'm going with this for Thursday, Friday, I'm putting a chance of snow in, but really how much we get then is, is a major question mark. A lot of our charts are showing very little snow Thursday, Friday. It's more about the cold. and it, it consist, I've been watching this for the last 10 days on our charts, and they've been consistently showing a cold snap kicking in Thursday. So when we wake up Thursday, it may be a little above freezing with a possible shower or flurry, and then that colder air is going to make its way in from the northeast during the day Thursday. So we'll end the day Thursday afternoon, minus four, minus five, potentially with a chance of snow as that colder air moves in. And then Friday, our, our charts are all showing wicked cold in here. Friday, possibly Saturday, as low as, you know, minus 10 to minus 15 in the lower mainland Friday morning and, and climbing to minus five for a high Friday. It's ridiculous, the, the cold air that these charts have consistently shown later in the week. So there's no reason to dispute that forecast. I'll go extremely cold later Thursday, Friday. But how much snow we get is still a question mark, Simi. Also, I just want to know, is that like a technical weather term when you say wicked cold? That's like really cold. (laughs) (laughs) Just to emphasize it, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm blown away by this because typically with the El Nino, we've had such a warm stretch and and I still think we're going to be above average temperature overall moving forward through February, March. Um, but this is a, a, a little blip here with this Arctic air that doesn't typically come our way during El Nino. It has in past, but this is a wicked outbreak coming later in the week. So it's, as I was telling uh, Jason here on Global, and I told John Strait, get that long underwear ready, you guys, <laughs> ready. And, uh, and, and for Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You bet. All right. I'll use it. Thank you so much, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you think people overshare on social media? I mean, 
I think so, but well, what do I know? Let's talk to our Scott Shantz about that. I mean, I'm an automatic yes on that, Scott. Yeah, but you, Simi, are like a less... You're like less, I mean, you're not even on social media. I mean, you are, but like, you're not no. like, you don't, you don't post. I think you use it a lot less than the average person. Maybe that's probably, how I'll sum it probably, up. Yeah, yeah. That's how I think about it. And I also think that, um, you are, you have a healthy like relationship with it. Whereas a lot of other people I would say probably don't. I'm probably one of those people that doesn't have the healthiest relationship. Have I told you that at some point? I might have. That I have an unhealthy relationship? (laughs) It's possible. uh, But I, I, it's because it's always there, right? It's so prevalent. I didn't grow up with it, but I was there for the beginning of it. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, they they overshare and overpost because it's just the language that they grew up with. But there's a shift happening. And maybe you've noticed this, that um, people are posting less and less on on social media because social media, in essence, is changing. You know, like it started out as being this um, connection platform, almost like a like a phone line. Like, hey, here's let me show, show you these pictures. Let me do that. You know, connect with other people that you already know and maybe meet new people. And now it has basically become uh, like a content sharing platform. If you're not creating something, what are you even doing posting or, or going on to social media? And some people go on simply just to consume that content. They're, they use social media strictly as consumers instead of content creators or posters. So in essence, what's happening is people are just posting less. So I wanted to know more about this. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I spoke to Dr. Kevin Tran. He is a senior media analyst at Morning Consult. Morning Consult, they call themselves a business intelligence agency. They do research and look into all these type of things. And I you know, sort of asked him if he could weigh in on, on this trend. Are people posting less on social media? This is something that's been talked about. Um, I think time spent overall is a different question, but in terms of what feel what people feel they're willing to post, that's definitely changing. And uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, has declined. So I think the reason for, for some people wanting to post less on social media has to do with the rise in the creator economy, um, with social platforms battling amongst themselves for a bigger share of influencer time spent. There's been a push to be the most lucrative uh, and worthwhile platform for influencers, um, which has contributed to many consumers seeing a lot of hyper curated content on their feeds. And I think this has made uh, a lot of consumers feel more insecure about posting more casual photos and videos that they might have posted uh, years ago. What group of people do you see changing the most the way that they use social media? Yeah, I think that Generally, the, the change we're witnessing is among younger consumers, which, which tend to be more avid users of, of digital platforms in general, not just social media, but platforms like video streaming um, and video games. Uh, you know, the younger generation, younger demos, Gen Z millennials tend to be heavier users of these types of services. Um, so it makes sense that we're seeing a, a change in behavior among them more than their older counterparts. Um, I think that uh, what's interesting, you know, going to your point on the need for more content, um, what's interesting is how other behaviors on social media are changing uh, with kind of this change in in posting. So what's clear is uh, I think a lot of younger consumers are are more comfortable with, um, you know, private messaging and, and posting to smaller groups rather than widely. 
Um, we've seen platforms like Instagram roll out features uh, recently that make it easier to post uh, either photos or videos to a select group of friends, um, you know, features that might not have been available a few years ago. So uh, there is a shift towards enabling more close friends, communication and sharing. Um, and I think that can be a positive for social media in terms of making it feel like less of a competitive place for people who aren't brands or influencers. Yeah, there's kind of this like conversation about uh, amongst my sort of parent parental peer group. We talk about this worry about our kids using social media. It's like, oh my gosh, what's it going to be like when my 10 year old gets on Instagram? Mm -hmm. And then there's this conversation that happens beyond that where it's like, oh, but they, our kids sort of see the way that it has affected us as parents and they're not going to want to do it that way. They're good. They're actually going to be concerned about their privacy and they're going to be concerned about like where, what they're using and where, f whereas sort of like for my generation, it just felt like a free for all, you know, we didn't have those sort of concerns 15 years ago. Do you see something like that happening that kids are going to be smarter or more discerning about how they use social media than their parents were? Yeah. I think what's interesting is that tying into this overarching, um, you know, theme of, uh, a lot of people being more selective of what they post, um, which our data backs up, by the way. In a survey we ran in September, 61% um, of adults with a social media account say they become more selective about what they post uh, on social media. Um, I think what, what ties into that is just we're at a point now where it's just not very novel to post pictures and updates of everyday things. Uh, like technology has advanced to the point generally where Many people can take high quality photos and, and post a story online, for example. So it just doesn't feel as uh, special as it did when platforms like Snapchat first launched and smartphone ownership across the U.S. was much lower. Um, so I think that has bled into kind of this next generation that we're talking about now where uh, people just feel more, you know, they're choosier about what they're posting, um, which I think in a lot of senses can be a positive. Uh, you know, if someone's on vacation, for example, uh, maybe five years ago or, or, or longer than that, someone might feel pressure to post photos and videos on their story, um, you know, constantly. Whereas now they might find it easier to just post one or two about their trip in general. And in that sense, it helps them unplug. Um, so I think that can be a positive for, uh, you know, the consumer in terms of uh, helping them with just mental health and kind of being able to unplug from tech. But um, for the social media platforms as well, that could be a positive if consumers are being more selective and, you know, are shifting towards more private or, uh, you know, close friends communication. Um, that could be a, a positive for them as well if uh, consumers feel more comfortable being online with that form of communication and posting. That's Kevin Tran. He's a senior media, media analyst at Morning Consult. They're like a business insights firm talking about how social media is changing. And it's gone from this like community based build community connection type of thing to curated content, uh, too much. sales like it's become television. You know, it is. It's the Instagram influence. Yeah. Influencers are everything. Yeah, I was having a conversation over the weekend about how you can't like travel is actually going down. Well, I mean, travel's not going down, but how 
my peers are like less interested in going to places like she referenced Machu Picchu because you're just surrounded by people with this tripods and I'm selfie sticks and all of that. How is you that know? enjoyable? I see some of the pictures of the Acropolis now in Athens and yes. I, all I can think of, whereas a few years ago I would have thought, oh, I want to go there. Now all I think is I would never want to be into that. Yeah. The reason that we got onto that topic, this friend and I, is because I had a picture of the Mona Lisa when, from when I was at the Louvre so in How close 2000. did you get to it? As close as, like, as close as I am to my computer screen, right? And then right. 20 years later, can't you can't get, get even can't the room. Don't near don't. it. Yeah. But like Dr. Kevin Tran is saying here, there's a trend for younger people. They see it differently and they're moving away from it. Okay. Well, you know what? It all comes full circle, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, whatever this generation thinks is great, the next one is going to say, forget that. Yeah. Then they're going to find something worse. <laughs> oh, so you think. <laughs> so you think, old man. Thank you for totally. that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you see the pictures from Whistler the last couple of weekends? Like, absolutely nuts. I know people are desperate to get some skiing in, and the local mountains have had dicey conditions, right? They're just not getting enough snow right now, although that might change this week. So people have been heading up to Whistler, but the lineups, it's been absolutely crazy. So we thought, let's check in with the mayor of Whistler, Jack Crompton, who is with us now. Thank you so much for being here. Jimmy, are you still saying Happy New Year? I think so. I think we can say that. Happy New Year to you. (laughs) How's it been in Whistler, though? It feels like ever since the new year, your community has just been jam-packed. Yeah, it's it's honestly nice to have people back in our town. You know, three years of a pandemic and less of Vancouver in our community changes things. So it's nice to have people back. And the last couple of days skiing have been unbelievable. So good. Okay, but Mayor Crompton, what about those lineups? They are not so good. What is going on? Oh, I think that's more a sign of enthusiasm for 40 centimeters in bluebird skies than it is any uh, inefficiencies. The People line up before the lift opens, and lots of people want to ski. Um, but my brother and his wife and their kids went to the Creekside Gondola at 9.30 and walked onto the lift. So um, when you line up before the doors open, the lines get long. But um, there's been a lot of upgrades in lift capacity out of the valley, so it clears fairly quickly. Um, but I think a lot of people want to ski, and the skiing is incredible right now. Okay, so you're saying it's not, nothing's going wrong there. It's just a lot of people up there. And would you say once you're up there, is it crowded or is it, is it moving along? Oh, <laughs> last couple of days I've had some of the best, I've been skiing here for 40 plus years. And the last couple of days up there have been amazing. Um, so yeah, ski lines are a part of, of skiing for sure. Uh, but it's been pretty special and we haven't had tons of snow leading up to now. So most of us who like to be up in the mountains are pretty hungry for some powder. Okay. And what is the tourist situation like then? Are you seeing, is this indicative of the kind of return to normal tourist levels, do you think? Yeah. Last year we were getting close to back to 2019 and it's um, similar now. So yeah, I think that we're uh, back to where we hoped and expected to be maybe a year or two earlier, which is really nice for for people who uh, work in the tourism industry and and want to have a paycheck in their pocket. Okay. What are you hearing from businesses that in terms of staffing levels and how busy it's keeping them? We're busy, (laughs) uh, but I think that there's there's room for more people to uh, come and visit. And certainly we're always looking to up our game and, and, and do better at welcoming people to our community. So we're constantly paying attention to how 
we can uh, do better than we did last year. Right. So is staffing a problem or are people finding, you know, the employees that they need? You know, early in this year, I a couple business people, I started to hear uh, there's great staff available for hire. Housing still a challenge that we're working really hard on, but it seems that um, now that more people can travel uh, around the world, workers who we lean on pretty heavily who come and, and be a part of Whistler every year are more able to um, come to Canada. And, and that's really important to staffing this town. Okay, that's good to hear then. So you're not worried. I mean, there was some grumbling on social media about the lineups and all that, but your message is like, hey, this is, you don't have to worry about this. Well, I love skiing and the skiing's good. <laughs> but um, I would say our team here and the team at Whistler Blackcomb are, are really attentive to ensuring it's a good experience. Um, we want to learn from the mistakes we make, but uh, it's pretty special right now. All right, you sound like you are into it. So has it been snowing? What's it like up there today? Uh, I'm just walking into the village, and we have a couple centimeters. Uh, we had, I think, 40 uh, over the weekend, and it was bluebird, so it's about as good as it gets. And then this big storm coming in, we're hopeful will really dump a lot more on us uh, and, and fill in some of the gaps, especially at the bottom half of the hill. All right, well, okay, we'll stay positive on that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's a pleasure to me. Have a great day. You too. That is Jack Crompton, who's the mayor of the resort municipality of Whistler. Uh, lots of chatter about Whistler on social media the last couple of weekends because of the hu- pictures of the huge lineups, people heading up the mountain. But you heard it from the mayor himself. He said, sure, that's people lined up at the beginning there at the start of the morning to get their first crack. But he said, overall, uh, things are moving. It is good. He said the skiing has been great. It'll get, it'll get better this week with more snow coming. Uh, but, you know, staying positive, all things working up at Whistler. Now, if you want to win, and I look at the lineups and I think, oh, boy, I don't know if I'd have the patience for that. But I guess if you love skiing, people are used to that kind of thing. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it a cold? Was it the flu? Was it COVID? Well, whatever it was, it has been hitting everyone. No doubt you've come across this in the last six weeks or so, running into people who are sick. Maybe it hit your household. But coughs, uh, constant coughs, like coughs with fever, being you know so tired, feeling that fatigue. What has been going on? Well, we thought, let's talk about this this morning. Dr. Horatio Bach is with us now, clinical assistant professor at UBC. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, good morning, Simi. Thank you for the invitation. Have you been seeing a lot of this or hearing a lot of this too? It does seem like everyone is sick right now. Yeah, it looks like that. So, um, you know, circle of uh, family or friends or co-workers. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very bad outside right now. What is it, Dr. Back? Like, do we know, is it one particular virus? Is it multiple viruses? So we, we, you know that in the period of the you know, cold weather that we are facing now, so we always have these seasonal viruses that they are coming and infecting many people. And then when the season is going, so we come back to relatively normal. But um, the problem is that um, um, we don't follow completely all the COVID-19 infections because that is the um, the what is done today and we don't know exactly we know that there are around 300 people hospitalized um, you know in the host you know hospitalized with COVID-19 um, and that is a, a, a multiple factor problem because is 
as you know, that we have this vaccine against flu and against uh, COVID-19. And we have for the COVID-19, we have the the best um, the best um, uh, vaccine right now that is the sequence of the latest virus. So remember that previously we had the vaccine against the original virus that it doesn't exist anymore or maybe in some pockets around the world. But definitely all these variants, they are evolving all the time. And unfortunately, the way that we deal right now is giving more and more ground to this virus to to replicate and produce more mutants because that is an event that ha- may happen at any time. And uh, that's what we see with the new COVID-19 variants right now. Okay, so is it also COVID-related, but also are there other viruses circulating out there too? Yes, we have the flu and we have also the um, um, rhinovirus that is very common in this period as well. But apparently there is a higher level in in this point, you know. So if you compare with previous years, like we had in the pandemic, everyone was, you know, most of people use the mask. And the level of these seasonal viruses was extremely low. As much low that people, they say, you know, when you go to your uh, family doctor and say, you know what, probably what you have is COVID-19 because the other viruses were not reported almost. So it was a huge difference. Once we just remove the mask, um, we can see that, you know, it's coming back, especially in this period that we have all this uh, cold weather outside and there are more and more indoor events. Okay, so what is a rhinovirus? The rhinovirus is a virus that is also um, causing kind of a flu-like symptoms. And it's very similar. All these flu, COVID-19, and rhinovirus are very similar. They infect the the respiratory system uh, in general in the upper um, in the upper tract. Um, there's other players as well that can cause pneumonia, and that we know that is um, um, you know normal for this area. We don't know where the virus is hiding during the, um, the you know, the, the summer or the hot weather, but it's something that is coming over and over every year. So it's, um, you know, basically, as, as, as you mentioned, it's just, you know, a week or two weeks that you are sick at home, uh, but it's very nasty, this one that we have. It, it can be also double infection. You can be infected with two different viruses as well, and that will increase the problem as well. Oh, wow. So you're saying that this particular rhinovirus that's circulating right now is particularly nasty? Well, you know, it's uh, the point is like uh, it's causing what we see, the causing of all these symptoms, uh, diseases. People feel very bad, very sick. So, it's, um, you know, it can be like uh, multiple factors again because right. uh, our immune system in general, um, it, it has not, uh, uh, not many defenses against rhinovirus because it's, Relatively, it's not a lethal virus compared to what used to be COVID. Okay, so are the symptoms different than Dr. Bach? Like, how can we identify what it is that we have? Well, the only test you have right now is the COVID-19, just to test if to rule out COVID. So the other can be either rhinovirus or the um, uh, the flu, so uh, flu virus. So it's, uh, it, we don't have tests for everything because they change all the time, uh, especially all this uh, flu and then um, in, to do that, we need a special uh, system to verify. And definitely it's not something that, uh, you know, we will do for everyone unless it's something that, you know, people are going to the hospital and they're very, very bad. So then you can um, uh, check that. But there is no uh, uh, treatment. You know, you have to wait 
until the, the, vi- the your body is recovering. And those viruses in general, we don't have a treatment like, you know, you take the pill, right. oh, it's gone. Yeah. The cough is really bad. This is what I've been hearing from so many people. The cough is really what's getting people. Yeah, yeah. The cough, and that's the way that the, the, the virus is also, uh, you know, spreading. So the virus means the, the, this, this coughing can be caused through the, the lungs, for example, that it, it again, can be a, a, a double infection, not only one. And, you know, you cough, you cough, and, you you know, you have all this, your, your throat is very uh, irritated and can be bloody, uh, you know, bloody as well. And it's not, a, it's, it's, it's not very nice, let's say. Right. Well, how can people protect themselves, Dr. Bach? Are there things that we should be doing? I think the mask. You know, we, we we showed for COVID-19 the mask, the surgical mask or the respirators are the best. And we tested with the virus and we found out the virus has, are retained inside the mask or respirator. So that's the first, you know, line though, that we can do. And, you know, it's something that will protect you not only against COVID or rhinovirus or other diseases that we see now that like can be bacteria, can be a pneumonia caused by bacteria. So having the mask basically will filter everything and you don't expect to have, uh, well, you are protected. That doesn't mean you have 100% right. protection because sometimes you go to the house of friends or family or you have uh, people coming to your place and we don't use masks now there unless someone is, you know, with some underlying disease, but I'm talking about the general population. Okay. So would you say that is this year, is it worse than we've seen in a long time? I think that is uh, something that is coming because we have a COVID flu. We have three players right now. In the past, you know, the uh, previous years, we have only COVID or we have the rhinovirus was not so so big. But now it's like we have three three uh, uh, agents like they are infecting us. And of, of course, one thing is very important is uh, uh, make sure that the people, uh, I mean, you are uh, up with the vaccine updated because it's, uh, we have vaccine against flu. And we have the new version of the COVID-19, uh, I mean, against the COVID-19, that is very, um, apparently is, is covering uh, all these viruses that we have now regarding COVID. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it looks like only about 20 or 30% of the population got the new, the new vaccine, let's say. Okay, so there are clearly things that people need to still do if they want to protect themselves. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Horatio Bach, clinical assistant professor at UBC. So here's the thing, though. It could be anything. It could be a rhinovirus. could be cold. could be flu. could be COVID. There's just so many things that are circulating around out there. And the symptoms are all over the place. You know, really bad cough, fever, fatigue, uh, cold. Um, you know, it, it just could be any one of those things. Or as Dr. Bach points out, could be two of those things together does feel like everyone has been sick out there. Now everybody's heading back to school to work this week. So maybe another round of that can be expected too. This is Mornings with Simi. It is crazy footage. People on a flight sitting there and a wide gaping hole where a door should be. An Alaska Airlines plane had to make an emergency landing in Portland, Oregon just a few days ago after the exit row door just blew out. 
By the way, the door landed in a Portland teacher's backyard, uh, FAA officials confirmed this morning. Now, this was a Boeing 737 MAX 9, and all 65 in Alaska Airlines fleet have now been grounded. So what do we need to know about this? Well, John Graddick is with us now, aviation management professor at McGill University. Good morning, John. Good morning. Boy, this was quite the story. What did you think when you heard it? Oh, I said, oh, no, here we go, another Boeing airplane. Um, so it, um, it doesn't bode well for Boeing's reputation. Uh, I think Boeing really has, uh, some work to do to kind of come to grips with this issue fairly quickly. Um, I don't think they can let this one drag. And I think that, uh, there has to be some, uh, some rethinking about, you know, how, um, Boeing does quality control on the airplane. Hopefully this is a incident that is only related to that one aircraft where there was a, you know, a fitting problem with this plug that was put into the fuselage. Um, you know, these, you know, there are hundreds of Boeing airplanes with plugs in their fuselage. So this is not just a, a single incident. Uh, so, and each one of those plugs work fine. There's no problem with it. This one seems to have failed for some reason. And we've got to get down to the root cause of that failure fairly quickly and uh, fix it and find out what happened and then make sure that uh, it doesn't happen again. Is this a concern for Canadian airlines at all? Not at all. I think that we don't have any airplanes that have that type of plug on them. The uh, Canadian Airlines operate uh, the MAX airplanes. They operate the MAX 8 airplanes, and there are no door plugs in those aircraft for, uh, to be concerned about. Right, but a lot of Canadians fly in the United States as well. We get on those flights and, and take them. Uh, so which American airlines are most affected by this? Is it just Alaska? Alaska's got 65 of these airplanes. United Airlines has got about 79 of these airplanes, 70, close to 80 airplanes. Uh, they have all been grounded. Uh, and the impact on the schedule for Alaska is significant because these airplanes represent about 20% of the fleet that air, of, of airplanes that Alaska has. So there is scheduled disruption taking place, substantial uh, scheduled disruption at Alaska while this grounding is taking place. The United Airlines has got, you know, uh, like I said, 80 airplanes, but... They've got, you know, a few hundred airplanes that they can basically redeploy to kind of patch up the schedule. So it's going to be less of an impact on the United schedule. There will be cancellations for sure, but not as many as there are going to be on Alaska. Right. You talked about Boeing needing to get themselves in order here. Boeing seems to have quite a few issues in recent years, don't they? Yep. Um, You know, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what is it? What's causing this stuff to happen? And, you know, Boeing's been... You know, in my in my books, the the gold standard when it comes to quality airplanes. Uh, you know, we all know the story of the 737 has been in business since 1970. So this airplane has has got a lot of legs, a lot of flight hours under it. There are over 5,000 of these airplanes flying around the world. It is the world's most populous, most popular airplane, um, and uh, it's been a uh, workhorse for airlines around the world for decades. Um, what happens? Now, with this MAX airplane, um, in my opinion, is that, you know, I think Boeing did not want to do what I call a clean sheet design of a competitive airplane to some of the new airplanes being produced by Airbus. And rather than build a brand new airplane based on a clean piece of paper, they decided to modify the design of the 737 to put all of the additional um, improvements that would make this airplane more competitive. And when you start doing that, it's like putting you know, taking your 1954 Chevy and making it a EV vehicle. It's uh, at a certain point in time, it doesn't fit. 
And I think that, you know, the Boeing's made a, a number of efforts to make this airplane um, competitive environmentally as well as operationally. Uh, and I think they may have pushed the envelope a little too far. Yeah, is that symptomatic then of bigger issues in, in terms of that chain of, of executive and how it works at Boeing? Well, we've seen, you know, a change of executives post the, the MAX, the MAX uh, crashes that we had in 2018 and 19. Um, you know, there was a change in leadership uh, at Boeing uh, as a result of that, and the new CEO and the new chief operating officer, uh, you know, were brought in to kind of change the culture uh, to give it more of a, of a integrity to the production and and design side of it, um, and that was you know four years ago. We're not sure whether they've had enough time to do it. This is an example of a situation where I don't think they uh, they've caught all of the bugs yet on the production line. So there may be some more work to do. Right, it's so interesting, John, isn't it? Because we spoke to you in the last week, but we were talking about as well the the Japan incident, about how that yeah. looked like a, a great piece of plane engineering, right? That people, everybody managed to get off that plane uh, safely. And here we have another issue. Does it illustrate how challenging it is right now in aviation design? <laughs> you know, well, you know, the, the airplane aircraft design, and the, the whole aviation community is really pushing the envelope when it comes to, you know, in the technology um, and we're putting like we said last week we talked about that you know that airplane in, in Japan made of composite material rather than aluminum uh, and that's new technology and so on this airplane uh, they're, they're, they're trying to put in new technology on the fuselage they're trying to put in some you know make, making one airplane fit the different you know a bunch of different configurations so they're trying to to, to bring in new technology, new new practices, and when you do that, um, you know you've got to make sure you've got all your ducks in order, uh, and to make sure you know you're able to deliver, uh, you know, a high quality airplane, you know, as of day one. Air, the industry does not tolerate failure, um, and you know I don't think passengers expect failure from these airplanes when they come off the production line. Uh, unfortunately, this is a brand new airplane, less than two or two months worth of service, and we have a structural failure on the airplane. Um, that does not bode well for, you know, people's trust in the, the Boeing product. Are there options for airlines, though? Is it? It's always just been, you know, Boeing or Airbus. Yep, that's it. This is a, this is a very capital-intensive business to build an aircraft. Uh, you know, you've got Embraer, uh, who's who's putting some airplanes in with Porter in Canada, uh, and then you've got the Russians and the Chinese with their airplanes. And I won't go into that uh, debate at this point in time, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a capital-intensive issue. You need tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars to establish yourself as, a, as an airframe manufacturer. Uh, many companies have gone by the wayside. Lockheed's gone by the wayside. Martin Marietta has gone by the wayside. McDonnell Douglas has gone by the wayside. So this is not you know, an industry for the faint of heart. You need deep pockets. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we were left with only two large players left standing around the world that can build these types of airplanes. So does that buy Boeing some time to figure this out here? Because honestly, that PR is terrible. Like the videos of social media and people out there talking about this, like you couldn't, it could not have been, you know, any worse for them. No, I did you know, they've got, they've got to somehow, some way, you know, climb their way out of this one. Um, you know, for them to say, okay, let's just say as an example, we're going to build a, a clean sheet airplane. <laughs> Six years. They get an airplane, you know, into a test flight. It's not, you know, these are not simple things to build. Um, they take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of engineering, a lot of aerodynamics stuff. Uh, so, the, you know, if they decide to build a new airplane, that's a six-year cycle to get the first airplane off the line. Um, so, 
the answer has to be within the context of their current manufacturing and assembly processes, fix it up so that, you know, every single airplane that comes off the line has been triple tested and that, you know, you're, you'd be willing to fly your mother on that airplane. And so right now, uh, people are saying, well, there may be some quality issues and some manufacturing issues, either with Boeing or with its subcontractors, and that has got to be fixed no matter what. Well, John, thanks so much for explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure, Simi. Have a great day. Take you care. You too. That's John Graddick, who's an aviation management professor at McGill University, talking about this Alaska Airlines plane that had the exit door blown off. They had a pressurization problem, uh, they called it. That same plane, by the way, they had prevented it from flying on, on, on routes over water because they had a light that kept going off telling them that they had a pressurization problem, but oh, they couldn't really find anything. So they let it continue to fly, but just over land. And then this happened. This flight had 177 people on board. And just by sheer luck or whatever, there were no people in those two seats closest to the door that got blown out, thank goodness, because this could have been much worse then. So the plane had to make an emergency landing in Portland. And now all of the 737 MAX 9s have been grounded by Alaska Airlines, as you heard, United as well. But in Canada, these planes are not in service. So that's, I think, the biggest concern for Canadians right there. 911.